We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. We don't need to talk about midichlorians. Please, God. <laughs> Welcome to Reread, the podcast where we talk about books that we're rereading for various reasons. And <laughs> on today's episode, we are coming back to the bard himself. This is the second Shakespeare play we are talking about, and we are talking about Macbeth. All hail Macbeth. The Scottish play. And this was a listener recommendation from my sister-in-law, Claire. So thanks for the recommendation, Claire. Shout outs to Claire. You'll be getting this episode four months after you <laughs> asked for it. So, And it's very topical. <laughs> I mean, the new Cohen. Yes. I guess it's just one Cohen brother just worked on it. So it's the, the Cohen brother adaptation came out, which... These last two weeks, I have consumed Macbeth in so many ways. <laughs> I have read Macbeth. I have listened to Macbeth. I listened to an audio tape version of the play. I watched the new adaptation. I am Macbeth at this point. My apartment has turned into a bog. These three witches keep bothering me. It's a whole thing. So should I take that as you are pro-Macbeth? The play, not the character. You know, it's a funny, it's a funny question because I do remember, like, well, I actually don't remember reading this for school. I have no memory of what that experience was like. The memory that does stick out for me is that the theater group at my high school did an adaptation. Wait, of wait, Macbeth. Casey, I'm so sorry to interrupt. This is so funny because my first exposure to Macbeth was my high school <laughs> doing a theater production of Macbeth. <laughs> Oh, fantastic. When I was in 11th grade. What was your experience like with, with that Macbeth? No, no, no. What Finish did you know? No, no, no. All right, all right, all right. Obviously, it's a high school production, so there were certain limitations. And I think one interesting thing, and I'm going to be talking about this, because in terms of the play itself, it's far from my favorite Shakespeare play. And even on this reread, I felt very mixed. There, there were some really, really amazing bits of it and then there are just parts that i could not care less but i do think that macbeth as a play is so it's so open for interpretation how do you play the character of macbeth how do you play uh, the character of lady macbeth how do you represent this world of macbeth because it's the world is like very creepy Boggish, and there's like vibes of Beowulf, but it also feels very dreamlike. It's a very confused play, and not in a bad way. There's just a lot going on, and there's a lot of inconsistencies with what's happening with the characters themselves, with the sense of time pass. It's it's a very it feels fitting given that Macbeth is a very confused person. So it's fun to see how people interpret. And one thing that stuck out to me of the high school adaptation is that the actor who, who played Macbeth played him as a coward. 
and it worked. It worked really, really well. And I thought that was such an interesting thing because really our first introduction to Brave Macbeth is is some soldier calling him Brave Macbeth and talking about how he's chopping people down. It was cool to see this person's interpretation of Macbeth. I have much more thoughts about the adaptations because even though this is not my favorite Macbeth play or my favorite Shakespeare play, <laughs> it's weirdly enough the play that I've seen the most versions of. There's the high school production. There was Roman Polanski's version that I saw, which is a very weird one. There is the Macbeth with Michael Fassbender, which is one of the worst Shakespeare adaptations I've ever seen. And then there's the Coen Brother film, which is one of the best Shakespeare adaptations I've ever seen. Before I keep rambling. <laughs> well, uh, as I mentioned before, my first my first Macbeth experience was indeed. Oh, actually, it was in 10th grade for me. Uh, the high school theater class did Macbeth and I went to see it because I had a friend in the play. I mean, it was it was a high school theater production, and I will say that, like, my school generally did a really good job with theater productions, but that said, you know, it's Shakespeare. It's hard. So, like, Macbeth and Lady <laughs> Macbeth were both really quite good, but, like, so, some of the other stuff wasn't as great, and sometimes, like, you couldn't hear as well as you wanted to, and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> so, anyhow, after I saw it, went home and read the play myself. So, it was the first time I ever read Shakespeare myself without, like being in a class that was reading it and was like eh at the time I was just like a little sad because I, I love the aesthetics of Macbeth like uh-huh. the weird uh sisters are so cool fun and obviously like you said it's like got this like bog atmosphere it's in Scotland there's like it's always night or it's foggy <laughs> or it's mist. like that's just fun times you know but I hadn't really revisited it since then. It's never come up in any of my college Shakespeare courses. So I've just kind of like ignored it for the past however many years. It was interesting to come back to it because like at this point, I'm much more like I've read a lot more Shakespeare. I've read a lot more plays from this time period. And so I thought I would feel differently. <laughs> <laughs> and I read it and I was like, yeah, this continues to be my least favorite Shakespeare I've, I've read. Mm. And I do think part of that is it's one of the shortest Shakespeare plays, and certainly of the tragedies, it's like real short. It is the shortest tragedy, yeah. I just don't think it gives that much room for that much psychological complexity. Like, that's like what I love about Shakespeare, is that you mm. can get so much of these like complex figures in, you know, relatively a very small amount of time. But this this was a little too small for me, especially for how much it was trying to juggle. Like, I hear what you're saying about how there's a lot of room for interpretation. But I guess I, I feel like the reason that you could argue that this play has more room for interpretation than maybe any other Shakespeare is because, like, the characters aren't really there that there. Like, I don't know who Macbeth <laughs> yes. is. I don't know who the hell he is. I don't really even know who Lady Macbeth is, although I feel like at least I have a better grasp on her. I don't know who any of these people are. And therefore, it's not, like, really interesting for me to watch them go around. Like, there are things I, I like about this play. I really like some of the themes. I got really, I think because I was not at all interested in the characters, I got really into some of the word 
details of this, like, you know, more close reading type things and started noticing some of the like, I'll get into it, but I started keeping track of some odd little textual things because that's how I was like driving myself forward. But I think that like, sadly, (laughs) I really, uh, I can't be like, I love Macbeth. I think I'm like, sure has some great lines in it. Sure do love that atmosphere. (laughs) It sure is Shakespeare, but I just, it is lesser Shakespeare for me. Well, certainly nobody loves Macbeth, the character. Everyone hates the character. <laughs> He's a piece of <laughs> shit. Before we keep going, we should probably get a summary in. <laughs> Take us away, Morgan. Okay. I'm going to keep this one real simple because it, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, it does, but this is a very, like, the plot is not that uh, intense. <laughs> it's so- not intense. <laughs> More, <laughs> I mean, I, I get well, what you're saying. I mean but... that, like, obviously, the, what happens are intense, but like, it's, it's not like the plot is like this super intricate. Thing. Yes. It's certainly not really the point. <laughs> so I just had to call that out because yeah, describing Macbeth as not intense. <laughs> <laughs> Many people do die in it. Yes. There's a lot of talk of murder. Murder. A child gets murdered. <laughs> It's a whole thing. A child full gets murdered on the stage. And then lots of children get murdered off stage. Ah, so Shakespeare was really going there, giving you the child death that you want, Casey. Thanks, Shakespeare. <laughs> okay. Summary right. time. So, yes, we open up on three witches who are planning where they're going to meet Macbeth. Then we cut away to King Duncan of Scotland with some of his, his men, his bros. <laughs> and he's uh, putting down, well, not him himself, but his men are putting down some rebellions that have popped up. And the person who is doing the bestest job of dealing with these rebels is none other than Brave Macbeth, who, yes, as you noted earlier, full on, I, I just have to say this word because I, this was such a great line. Macbeth unseems this guy from knave to chops. <laughs> I just love the use of unseems. So Duncan's like, yes, Macbeth. Okay, I'm going to give him all these titles, all this glory. He is my dude. You guys go tell him. We pop over to Macbeth and Banquo, another of the lords of Scotland. And they're, they're riding along when they come across the witches. And the witches are like, hey. Macbeth, you are going to be the Thane of Glamis, uh, the Thane of Cawdor, and you're going to be the King of Scotland. <laughs> and Banquo's like, wait, 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 enough about Macbeth. What about me? <laughs> and they're like, Banquo, you ain't ever going to be king, but you're going to be the father of kings. Macbeth's like, hey, tell me more. And the witches are like, nah, and they peace out. And Macbeth and Macbeth are like, what? What could this mean? And then two of the lords sent by the king roll up and they're like, hey, Macbeth, guess who's Thane of Glamis and Thane of Cawdor? And Macbeth is like, Oh my god, the witches were right. I'm going to be king. Bank was like, wait, 
does this mean? I will be father. And they make, they're like, we'll talk about it later, bro. They come to the king. And the king is like, awesome job, Macbeth. Also, my eldest son, Malcolm, is definitely going to be king after me. Macbeth's like, what? (laughs) And he writes a letter to his wife, which is very cute of him. We know this because we open the next scene on her reading it and being like, hum, hum, hum. You're supposed to be the next king, but you're just going to, like, stand there, Macbeth? Macbeth, you've got to do about this. That's when her whole, like, unsex me now line happens, which I know everyone knows about. Well, maybe not everybody knows. The people who are not as familiar with this play might be, what the (laughs) f*** are you talking about? Unsex me? What does that mean? But I guess we can discuss that more afterwards. Yes. Um, I underlined every single un word in this play. (laughs) So I have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) Starting with unseemed, which is still a great line. Mm. So Duncan the King is now coming to Macbeth's house to like celebrate. And Lady Macbeth and Macbeth are like, wow, maybe we should like assassinate him while he's here. It's mostly Lady Macbeth. (laughs) Macbeth's like, oh no. And she's like, we got to do it, boo. We got to. If you want to be king of Scotland, we got to get this done. And they come up with a whole plan about like, Lady Macbeth will drug the men that are, like, watching over the king's chamber, and then Macbeth will go in and do the murder, and then they'll plant the murder weapons on the guys. And they do this. They do succeed. They do They do murder the king of Scotland. <laughs> like, Macbeth is so, like, upset after murdering him that he's like, I can't plant the evidence, babe. I just can't do it. And Macbeth's like, oh, my God, it's just a dead body. And she goes in and she does it because uh, she gets <laughs> done. Hashtag girl boss. And this is soon discovered. Everyone's very upset. The king's sons are like, I think we need to dip because there's some treachery going on here. And like, maybe we might be in danger. So they fold dip out and Macbeth is made king of Scotland. Macbeth also murdered the men in the king's chamber. Like after he... Uh, quote unquote, discovers the king's body. He's like, Oh, I flew into such a rage, I had to murder them. Uh. And everyone's like, Bruh. <laughs> and Macbeth's like, You didn't truly love him if you didn't also instantly want to murder them. <laughs> so people are just kind of like, That's maybe you have some issues, dude. So after Macbeth is made king, he's like, Well, I do love being king, but I don't really feel secure in, like, being king because Banquo, like, knows about this whole prophecy thing and therefore maybe has an idea that maybe I got up to some (laughs) shit. And also, his sons are supposedly going to be king. And, like, there's no really point in me being king if my kids also aren't king. So, like, Banquo's got to go. And Lady Macbeth is like, uh, we're fine. Like, babe. We're fine. What's done is done. Like, calm the f*** down. But Macbeth is working himself up into a tizzy because he's very high-strung. So Macbeth arranges for some murderers to take down Banquo and his son. And the murderers do manage to take out Banquo. But his son escapes. And Macbeth finds out about this and is like, oh! But then there's this big feast. And that's when he sees Banquo's ghost sitting in his place. And he starts, like talking to the ghost in front of everyone and other lords are like what the f*** is going on and Lady Macbeth is like he just has fits sometimes 
It's not a big deal. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And the guy, like, the lords are like, oh. He's ranting and raving about how somebody's been murdered. He's talking about Banquo, but he's, even in his fits, he's careful enough to avoid naming Banquo in this instance. So he doesn't necessarily incriminate himself. But he's saying some wild sh** about, you should be dead. What are you doing? Get out of here. Either come back so I can kill you properly or things like that. He's having a good time. Indeed. So he is, you know, a little, a little disturbed, a little worked up. He's like, I'm going to go see the witches again and just make sure it's all good. Like, there's this whole interlude with the witches where, like, Hecate, the goddess of, like, witchcraft, is like, why did you do this without me, witch people? I should be involved. Why are you helping out Macbeth? Blah, blah, blah. But it's also, like, not important. (laughs) So Macbeth goes back to the witches and is like, give me some more prophecies. I need them. And they tell him, you know, beware of Macduff. But they also tell him that no one born of a woman will be able to harm him. And also that he will be totally fine until Burnham Wood comes to this What's the name of the hill? Dunsian? Dunsianine? I don't... Dunsanine? Dunsanine? Dunsanine sounds right. We're going to go with that. (laughs) Dunsanine Hill. (laughs) Yeah, so he's like, oh, trees can't move, and all men have to be born a woman, so I'm totally fine. I'm immortal. I'm great. But... Then they also tell him that they, like, show him the future kings of Scotland, and they're all, like, clearly related to Banquo. And he's like, um, that's an issue. Mm. Boo. Boo boo. I would say that they're not necessarily the future kings of Scotland. Yes, they are. They are kings. They are kings in general. The countries they're kings of are, they go unnamed. Yes. Some of these kings will be kings of multiple countries, even. Yes, you are correct. (laughs) They still become kings of places, and I think he's certainly still worried that one of those places is going to be Scotland. Yes. So, Macbeth also finds out that, uh, well, not from the witches. The witches peace out at this point. He then finds out that Macduff has fled to England, which is where also Malcolm the old king's uh, eldest son, has has also gone. Macbeth decides to go to Macduff's castle and and kill everyone, because why not? (laughs) That at this point, uh, Lady Macbeth has gone mad. This is like out-out damn spot time. Really, she has almost all the really iconic lines in this play, and good for her. So yeah, she's sleeping walking around being like, Blood! (laughs) And, the, and so the people watching over her are like, um, this is really suspicious. <laughs> it's like really suspicious. In England, Macduff is with Malcolm. There's this whole conversation that is really weird between Malcolm and Macduff that maybe we can talk about because yeah. I, I was just like, this is the weirdest little conversation ever. But they have a little combo about whether or not Malcolm would be a good king of Scotland. And then Macduff finds out that his wife and children have all been murdered. And I will say, I will give Macduff, well, and this, Macbeth this whole play, 
uh, this, that, like, the way Macduff reacts after finding out that, like, his wife and all his children have been murdered is actually a surprisingly good depiction of that sort of shock. Yeah. Because he keeps being like, and my wife, too, and all my children, and, and my children, and my wife. Like, he keeps, like, he can't believe it. It was probably the most emotionally moving moment in the play for me. After that, Macduff is all fired up to <laughs> take Macbeth down. So they head back to Scotland where they come up with the whole this whole scheme of going through the wood and each person like taking a branch to like <laughs> which is how the the wood ends up moving to the hill. I'm like There's a reason why wow. Tolkien <laughs> hated this it is the dumbest way to fulfill this prophecy we can talk about the how the f- prophecies are fulfilled because yeah shakespeare i like the one that. with Macduff, but yeah i was thinking about tolkien when i was reading them because he ends up doing sort of variations on both of them in lord of the rings yeah. in my opinion we should clarify for people the ents were inspired in part by this prophecy in Macbeth. Basically, Tolkien was pissed off that it wasn't, the trees didn't actually move, or Shakespeare didn't find a better way to fulfill this prophecy. So he's just like, I'm going to make walking trees, and I'm going to make them walk (laughs) to destroy a fucking kingdom. And then obviously the whole witch king, Eowyn thing. Right. No man can kill me. I am no man, is, is kind of reminiscent of the Macbeth. Thing. In other words, Tolkien is is just better than Shakespeare, which maybe that's a hot take. I don't think it is. Anyhow, Macbeth, uh, on the eve of battle and everything, Macbeth finds out, one, that his wife has killed herself. And two, he finds out that, like, the trees are moving, supposedly. And he's like, what? What? And he's like, but I'm still cool. I'm still cool. Every man has to be born of a woman. So I'm fine. I'm fine. The battle begins. Fight, 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 fight. And Macduff and Macbeth end up facing off. And Macduff's like, you can't kill me. You are born of a woman. And Macduff's like, actually, I was born via C-section. So, (laughs) deuces. Untimely ripped is how he terms it. Another un for you. Un, 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 yes. And Macbeth's like, oh, shit. I'm scared now, but uh, I can still do this. And no, he can't do this. Uh, Macduff kills him. Beheaded. Yeah, he then carries his head onto the stage to be like, hey, look what I did. And Malcolm's like, awesome. I'm going to be king now. I'm sure that, you know, numerous bloody rebellions... Haven't horribly impacted this land at all. <laughs> it's great. Come see me get crowned. <laughs> the end. Oh, I, I guess we should say, if you're wondering what the <laughs> f- happened with Fleant, why I thought he was supposed to be king. <laughs> wow. Okay, listener. So bear with me as I provide some boring, and I mean truly boring historical context. So this play was written... Allegedly, in 1606, which was during the reign of King James. The first of England and the, like, seventh of Scotland. And I think the first performance of Macbeth was actually for King's James. Uh, King James. Anyway, 
so there was this idea. Banquo, all these characters, Macbeth, Banquo, blah, blah, blah. They're actually based on historical figures. And there was this notion at the time, which I think has been proven to be false, that King James was a descendant of Banquo. So the whole line about Banquo producing kings was just a bit of brown-nosing on Shakespeare's part. Well, quite a bit was, <laughs> was brown-nosing. I guess, historically, Banquo was actually like involved in the murder yes. of King Duncan. And Macbeth actually was like a fairly chill ruler while he ruled. So like there was a lot that was done to make Banquo seem better and Macbeth seem worse. The whole play is kind of a propaganda project. But, I mean, I don't think that lessens the play. A lot of Shakespeare's plays were propaganda projects. Yes. Yeah. A lot of the theater at the time was. I mean, there was no freedom of speech. <laughs> so if you wrote a play the monarch didn't like, they could like full cancel you. So, and by cancel, I mean behead. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, cancel culture, man. <laughs> yeah, you think it's bad now? <laughs> Want to go back to the 1600s? Also, correction on myself from earlier, James VI of Scotland. Not the seven. Oh dear God! Just gotta gotta get that right. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a very funny part where it's Malcolm and Macduff talking. There is just this <laughs> ridiculous tangent where they talk about the King of England and how he is a healer who clearly is touched by the divine. All he has to do is place a golden coin around a person's neck and pray for them. And they will be healed of any malady. Oh, Shakespeare, you're, you're just, you've gone a little bit too far. I know you want to be in the good graces of the royalty that you're presenting this play to. But that's just, yeah, too far. That whole conversation is weird. Because, like, then after that, there's it's like in that same scene, right? Where after that, there's the part where Malcolm's like, would you want to put me on the like throne even if I was so lustful that I just like couldn't stop myself from banging every single woman? And Macduff's like, oh, that's fine. There are always plenty of willing women for royalty. And Malcolm's like, oh, but I'm also like really, really greedy. <laughs> Do you, oh, would that goodness. be fine? <laughs> Macduff's like, well, certainly you'll be like, have enough as king. And then Malcolm's like, mm, I don't know. I have like literally no good qualities. Uh. Macduff's like, oh, no, you should not be king. That's not good. Then Malcolm's like, actually, psych. It's totally fine. I've never like lied before except this last time. Like just uh. to test to you. It's such a weird, weird part of the play. The idea of it, Malcolm says that he, Macbeth apparently has tried to use agents before to trick Malcolm and try to, I don't know, ambush him, kill, find some kind of schemes. So <laughs> this is Malcolm's version of testing Macduff to make sure that Macduff is actually a good person. If after saying, I am all these bad things and Macduff is like, yeah, whatever, just come along. Then Malcolm might get suspicious and be like, oh, you're not actually a good guy after all, because a good guy would be like, no, f*** you. 
and uh, it feels Shakespeare is he's not the most subtle writer, but uh, this whole scene is just not subtle in any shape or form. And it's just like so weird because then you have Malcolm being like, yeah, I'm actually a virgin. I've never felt even attached to my own possessions. There's like a feeling of like, oh, okay, you're you're too good of a tootie goot, too good tootie good shoes of a tootie good shoes. I'm just gonna stick with it. I'm keeping it in. He's a tootie good shoes. No, no, you gotta do the whole thing. Tootie goo shoes. A tootie goo shoes, which it actually is kind of fitting because I have thoughts about how he's depicted in the Coen brother film. Mm. The person they cast to play Malcolm is just the most dweebish uncharismatic looking mother <laughs> I have more thoughts about that later but I will say to give it well the scene's weird for like numerous reasons one being that that's not how the divine right of kings works <laughs> like <laughs> if Macduff was truly loyal in like this system that's in place this is not what I'm actually advocating to be clear but like divine right of kings was a thing if Macduff was truly loyal, then he would want the eldest son of the king, the rightful king, to be on the throne because he would believe that's what God intended. And that was, it wasn't like, oh, whoever's the best gets to be king. (laughs) That's not how monarchy works. So it's, that seems a little weird in that context as well, as when you do remember that this was a propaganda project. So like, that's kind of funky. But I will say that it does at least kind of tie into some of the themes of the play in that like this I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little monologue. <laughs> so what I really felt rereading this is like how much of the emphasis of this play is on questioning what is real, what's not, what is the truth, what's not, and like things being mixed up and not being able to tell Things that are diametrically opposite from, like, each other. So, like, the first four scenes of this play open with questions. And, like, I would not be shocked if there are more questions in this play than, like, well, proportionally, because it's a really short play. Yeah. Than other Shakespeare plays. Because there's so many questions in it, period. And there's a lot of times where the characters are talking about two things that are opposite being true at once. So for instance, Macbeth's very first line is so foul and fair a day I have not seen. Foul and fair (laughs) are about as far apart as you can get from each other. But that's kind of the entire like play. That's what characters are grappling with the whole play is these two things being true at once. Macbeth also saying that the witch's words, they cannot be good, but they cannot be ill. And I'm sure I'll come across other lines I underlined (laughs) that have this. But I think that that's part of why I started noticing all the unwords is this sort of like things being opposite, things being undone constantly. There are so many unwords. Mm. There's at least one per scene, I think. (laughs) There's a lot of unwords. And there's also a lot of emphasis on nothing and knowing or not knowing the self i love this line uh lady Macbeth says what's done cannot be undone but like i said the entire play is like so concerned with undoing yeah 
I have so many thoughts about that line in particular. It's such a good one. There are some real good lines in here. Like, I'll give it that. I mean, obviously, like, my my favorite line. Not, I mean, the line's great, but it's also, I, I love it because it uh, has other meanings for me. But, like, the whole said tale told by an idiot full of sound yes. and fury signifying nothing. Great. Also, Faulkner. <laughs> <laughs> for people who don't know, there's a, a William Faulkner book called Sound and Fury. It's one of Morgan's favorites. The title is directly inspired by Macbeth. Yeah. Oh, here's another line of opposites. Fathered he is and yet fatherless. Those sort of lines are all over the play. And then another emphasis that I noticed, of course, is the idea of manhood Mm. and what it means to be a man. There are so many times where someone is like, are you a man? There are so many lines like that. Of course, there's Lady Macbeth asking to be unsexed so that she can rid herself of femininity to, like, presumably take on more masculine traits. Lady Macbeth also tells Macbeth that he's been unmanned in folly. It's just, like, I do really love the just layer upon layer upon layer of confusion. Yes. And sort of entropy that exists within this play. Despite that, I I still really struggle with the fact that, like, I don't know any of these characters, but the themes are fun. (laughs) The themes are really fun. I hear what you mean about the play, like, wanting to know more about Macbeth, but it services the theme so well to have Macbeth, like, the first thing we're told about Macbeth is that he's brave. And then when we actually see him, he operates... Like, this wishy-washy, cowardly schemer. There's a line about how, from Lady Macbeth to to Macbeth, about how he should play, have the appearance of a flower, but be the serpent underneath it. And there is something about the fact that he hires assassins to, to kill Banquo. Like, this is brave Macbeth? To go after... McDuff's defenseless family. It feels weird. It feels unsettling. But before I continue, I do want I had an idea about that scene of the scene with Malcolm and McDuff and why it's so weird, because I think part of what's going on is that for the play to work, Malcolm has to establish his legitimacy as king. However, you can't make him too legitimate because (laughs) then you perhaps maybe suggest that King James, you might be questioning his legitimacy a bit. So you can't, can't have the divine right involved there. And just to make sure it's absolutely clear that King James is the guy, you have that weird anecdote about the English king being clearly touched by the divine. Which is kind of fitting for this play because there's so many twists and turns, but that scene is twisting and turning so hard to make sure it's not pissing off King James. (laughs) 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 Uh, It's so funny. But the idea of manhood in particular is so interesting to me. Or actually, to go back to my previous thought, what I was fascinated by is this kind of contrast that's being played between Christianity and paganism. So 
in that opening monologue about Macbeth, there's this weird reference to Gogolfa, which if you have read your Bible, Morgan, that is the <laughs> the site where Jesus was killed, was nailed to the cross and died. The suggestion of the line is that Macbeth went into the battlefield with the intent of creating a scene so infamous, so brutal, that it would match up with the death of Christ himself. Which is very weird, very, very unclear what's being said. And then there's like all these contradictions taking place when when the body of Duncan is discovered by Macduff. Macduff first describes it as he describes Duncan's body as God's temple. But then like two or three lines later, he says, go into the room and look on that Gorgon yourself. And a Gorgon is, well, it's Medusa. It's, Medusa's one of the Gorgons, yeah. Yeah, they're kind of creature they can turn you into stone if you look at them. Yeah, and he says the sight would turn you to stone to see it, which is why it's it's a Gorgon. It makes sense in that context, but it is still weird that we're jumping without any rhyme or reason, jumping back and forth from Christian imagery to pagan imagery. We and there's like this kind of feeling of human sac because one one of the famous lines in this play is, you know, Macbeth is having doubts about whether he should go through with killing Duncan. And Lady Macbeth says, screw your courage to the sticking place. The idea of the sticking place, it could refer to a target. It's like for, I guess, archery. But as I was researching Macbeth, I discovered one thing is that uh, sticking is actually a term used in, I, I guess, butchery. It describes the slaughtering of animals by like cutting their throats. That's what Macbeth what Macbeth is doing to Duncan. He's slaughtering him like an animal. Also kind of like cannibalism, because there is an image later describing Duncan's horses and how they've apparently gone mad. And it's just randomly thrown in there that apparently the horses ate each other. Yeah. And just before that, there's a line about uh, a falcon towering in her pride of place was by a mousing owl hawked at and killed. Yeah. All these elements that are like it basically comes down to who is Macbeth and I think this is why the play is so much fun to adapt Macbeth is brave but he's also a coward he's also very passive there's suggestions that it's kind of Lady Macbeth driving him at first but then there are times where he's like really involved in the scheming and it's just so confused it is such a confused play like thematically that is so cool to see that i mean there's literally a line from Macduff. i think it's Macduff. confusion now hath made his masterpiece in freaking deep which is interesting because like the history of this play like you said it's the shortest of his tragedies and there is some suggestion that some, some scholars believe that this actually might be an incomplete version of the play that we have and that there there are chunks of it missing, which would make a lot of sense because, again, 
there are just a lot of characters that that aren't really cemented. But then there are like scenes you brushed over it in the summary, rightly so, that the scene with Hecate. Yeah. Some scholars believe that scene was added later. Yeah, by Thomas Middleton. Yeah. It feels like it's there just to be clear. These witches are bad. <laughs> it's like, it's like, okay, what well, that wasn't ever in doubt, really. But my point being, the play feels incomplete. And ironically, in a way, that that services the play. Again, it's just a confused mess of who these characters are. What is their goal here? Obviously, Macbeth wants to try to hold on to power, but he's not thinking through anything. And Lady Macbeth isn't thinking through anything. Well, Macbeth, I think Lady Macbeth puts a little more thought into it than Macbeth, but there's no like central purpose holding everything together. It's just very ad hoc. And I feel like that adds to the whiplash of these scenes. It's so funny. Macbeth keeps doing this thing of like, okay, I need to kill Banquo just to ensure that I'm safe. And once Banquo's dead, I'm okay. Then Banquo is killed. And suddenly Macduff becomes the new public enemy number one for some reason. There will never be a time where Macbeth feels fully secure in who he is. Because even when he's given the prophecy that, like, no man born of woman will kill you. And he's like, oh, then I'm completely safe. But just to be sure, I'm going to kill Macduff <laughs> anyway. And it's like, what are yeah. you talking about, Macbeth? <laughs> I mean, I think that uh, to Shakespeare's credit, there is like a whole theme of Macbeth not knowing himself in the play. Like, he literally says, to know my deed, for best not know myself. Which, like, yes, it obviously means it'd be best not to know about the deed himself. But it, it's also got that other sort of insinuation uh, baked in there. Then he talks later about when he's talking about why he has to call Banquo. He's like, to be thus, he means king. To be thus is nothing but to be safely thus. But also, again, baked in there, to be thus is nothing. To be himself is nothing. And there's, yeah, this theme of uh, Lady Macbeth Macbeth talks about how knots had all spent. I I do think at least Shakespeare put some thought into the concept that, like, Macbeth just doesn't know himself or want to know himself. And then when he's king, there's a line from one of the lords talking about Scotland. It says, a lost poor country, almost afraid to know itself. Which, of course, the king reflects the state of the land is just mm. like a, another common theme in works of this time. On the upside, at least I feel like Shakespeare was doing this semi-intentionally. Like, even if there are scenes missing, I don't, I feel like the scenes would maybe make some of the things that happen make more sense. Like, we would get more about how, you know, there's some lords that we see, like, chilling with, with Macbeth. And then, like, two seconds later, they're like, he's a tyrant. And I'm like, what has he done that's been, he's, he got a little right. bit crazy at a banquet. You know, like, we don't really <laughs> get to hear about what he's doing that's so tyrannical. And 
Certainly. I think people have noted that, like, originally Lady Macbeth makes it sound like she'll do the murder, and then they come up with this whole separate plan later, so that's a little confusing. And there's, like, a little things like that that I would agree make it feel like there's some scenes missing here, but I don't know if those scenes would have actually improved our understanding of the characters, because I do think that Shakespeare is deliberately creating this sense of, of confusion and of not knowing and of undoing. And so like the people, I think most of the characters become less than who they were at the start. We get like the longest monologues from Macbeth in the beginning. Uh, Not that he doesn't monologue later, but like, I think that you, he becomes less. Lady Mm. Macbeth certainly becomes less as she goes insane. And maybe I'm giving Shakespeare too much credit. (laughs) But I'm inclined to give him a lot of credit <laughs> and and say this is intentional um, and not just a, a product of the omissions. That said, I still dislike it as a choice. I, <laughs> good concept, Shakespeare. I don't I don't love it in practice, but maybe maybe if I watched the singular Cohen brother movie. <laughs> mm. This might be the hottest take that I've ever had for this podcast. Oh wow! I don't think. Shakespeare is as much of a genius as people like to say he is. I think in the same way that Star Wars is heralded as this masterpiece, and then people turn to George Lucas and say, George Lucas is clearly a genius, but then you actually dig into the history of Star Wars and discover a lot of it was by accident. They were happy accidents, and to be clear... All creative processes, there are accidents that just work out really, really well. That's not like saying like, oh, Shakespeare's just a lucky bastard. No, you put yourself in a place where you can have those those lucky accidents. But I do think Shakespeare is akin to George Lucas (laughs) in in that sense. Oh no. Okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna dispute you hard on this because like one, the original Star Wars movies aren't good. And two I knew you were gonna uh, go there. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Shakespeare is so consistently I can look at this play and be like, I don't love this, but I can also be like, it still has a lot of merit and it has a lot of like good ideas in it and Shakespeare at his worst, I feel like, is so, so incredible, (laughs) you know? So I I understand what you're saying, and I do think that, like, with any writer... By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? I do think with any writer, there is a certain amount of lucky coincidence. Mm -hmm. Like, you decide the curtains are blue, and then the reader's like, oh my god, genius. It totally reflects the sense of loneliness and isolation, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, nah, I just decided to make the curtains blue. <laughs> so, like, I'm not disputing that. I do, I would argue that for anyone who writes, you know, in verse instead of prose, like, there is more deliberation on word choice and stuff, and therefore I'm I'm willing to put a little bit more weight onto that. And, you know, if it was, like, one line where someone's like, you don't know yourself, Macbeth, or something, like, I would be like, ah, oh, yeah, it's just, you know, it's just a line. It's it's when I find recurring, like, themes throughout that I'm like, okay, so this is intentional because we just keep coming back to this concept and this idea. And so 
I see what you're saying that I do think some people are like, wow, Shakespeare, the greatest mind that ever existed. Everything was intentional. Every single word means something so deep. And no, of course not. Like there are certainly parts of any of his plays where you can be like, these are just dick jokes. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, that said, I am willing to give him a lot of credit when I feel like the work has been put in. I feel like if if I can see it in front of me, you know? Yes. Uh, and to be clear, I'm not saying that Shakespeare is George Lucas. I'm just saying he's closer to George than he is to God. I'll put it that way. And uh, yeah, I just wanted that take out there. I do think it's <laughs> um, there is this idea of the the boggish nature of this play this idea of things bubbling up to the surface i think the the weird sisters banquo refers to them as like hold on let me let me get the line uh, <laughs> like the entire time i was reading i was just like this song <laughs> don't sleep it's okay you know let's just walk the earth half bubbles as the water has, and these are of them. Uh, and that's Banquo referring to the the Weird Sisters. But there is this idea of what lurks in our souls. Specifically, the, the play is asking, what lurks in Macbeth's soul? What bubbles out when he's given this information that he will be king? And what we see bubbling out is this almost immediate scheme to kill Duncan. <laughs> there, there is darkness lurking in there. But there, there is this idea of like, there's this weird play of the supernatural, the unnatural, and the hypernatural. Is this part of Macbeth's nature? That he's a monster inside that wants to murder his king? Is this something artificially placed there by these witches? Is there something else going on? Because again, like the first scene we have with Lady Macbeth, she says that Macbeth is like too filled with the milk of human kindness, which already that like that's at odds with what we've been told about Macbeth already, that he (coughs) unseemed a guy. Do you know your own husband, Lady Macbeth? But maybe she does. Maybe she knows more than... This random soldier, like, why should we believe this soldier? May I don't who Well, who, you also have to think it's kindness in comparison to like her. <laughs> well, yes, because she does have a line about how this is probably the most brutal line in the play, where Macbeth is is having his doubts about going through with the murder, and Lady Macbeth is like, I have nursed babies, but if I felt the way that you did and I had a baby that I was nursing, I would f***ing bash its head against the wall and murder the out of it. Yeah, and then and then Macbeth is like, no wonder you have male children only, for they undaunted metal should compose nothing but males. <laughs> Which actually gets to, back like, to... To add on to the theme of manliness. Right, yeah. that gets back to the idea of what it means to be a man Let's let's talk about the unsexing bit. So good. I have so many thoughts about manliness because I... Oh, okay, wait. I'm going to do a quick run through and then we can talk about it sure. more in more depth. Because there's just like... I found some of the lines I wanted. 
But yeah, so like Lady Macbeth and Macbeth clearly have this very like violent view of what manliness is and what therefore femininity being the opposite. So like Lady Macbeth is like, unsex me so that I can do this vile thing. Macbeth's like, you're going to have male children because you are so brutal. She is constantly being like, are you a man? Like, but then there's this great part later. It's in that scene where Macduff finds out that his wife and children have been murdered brutally. And he's really upset. And Malcolm's like, let's get some revenge then. And Macduff's still kind of like grieving and processing this. And Malcolm's like, dispute it like a man. And then Macduff says, it's so good. I shall do so, but I must also feel it as a man. In contrast to everything else in this play, Macduff does the anti-toxic masculinity thing of being like, I need to feel as a man the loss of my wife and children. Like, it's not unmanly to feel this and to have this grief. And, like, I'm not just going to go straight to, like, I'm angry, I'm getting revenge. Like, I need to feel this. That's why I do feel like at least the showdown of Macduff and Macbeth in the end, which is just kind of like, uh, but, like, (laughs) there is at least, you feel like these two different versions of masculinity are dueling with each other. It's Macbeth's very toxic version. And Macduff, who isn't that much better, but at least is, like, my wife and kids died. I'm I'm gonna f- I'm gonna feel that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I just wanted to talk about that line. Sure. While we're here, I'm gonna throw in some lines as well because I think. Do you actually discuss Shakespeare if you don't mention queer coding at any point? No. <laughs> Maybe I'm reading into it too much, but there is some fascinating queer coding going on with Macbeth. There are two particular lines or references there's the one when he before he's going to kill duncan he's going to go into duncan's bedchamber he has this line about the wolf who's howls his watch thus with his stealthy pace with tarkin's ravishing strides towards his design moves like a ghost and if you're wondering who the heck is tarkin well, that's uh, Grand Moff Tarkin, obviously, from Star Wars. <laughs> no, uh, Tarkin apparently was a Roman senator who infamously went into the bedchamber of another senator or leader or somebody and raped that person's wife. So making that reference as you're going to head into the bedchamber, it's an interesting choice. And then another reference that stood out to me And I don't know, again, I don't know if this is just like, if it had a different meaning back then, but when Macbeth meets with the murderers, he refers to their, as like he, he's trying to make love to them, which at least in Victorian time meant like to court, to seek their affections. That was weird. He's playing almost like the woman's role. Let me be clear. We're talking about a a play written in the early 1600s. Antiquated ideas of manhood and and womanhood are just Mm -hmm. tied into this. You know, if you want to write a paper about the misogyny in Shakespeare. Oh, my God. Go ahead. (laughs) If you want to be Bella Swan. If you want to be Bella Swan from Twilight, go ahead. Just do it. But 
to be absolutely clear, I'm I am talking from that frame of reference. So obviously all of this is bullshit. But with the way the play is working, it's seeming to suggest that Macbeth is acting more like a woman. Certainly Lady Macbeth is acting more like a man. I do think that this is, again, part of the confusion of the play, right? Mm. Is like, ah, the genders are confused. (laughs) Which, like, yes, everything you said about it being the early 1600s. So I'm just going to work from that framework. But yeah, so there's this confusion of gender and gender roles. And I do think it's really fascinating because scholars have pointed out that part of what happens in a tragedy is that there's there's kind of this like lack of women. <laughs> Comedies end in marriage. That's like uniting the two sexes, everything's in harmony. And so it's when women are sort of cast aside that then we go down the tragic route. But Lady Macbeth is this kind of interesting, not subversion of that, because she also, like, goes crazy and dies and (laughs) therefore is gone by the time, you know, the end of the play rolls around. But there is something about the way that she and Macbeth operates. They, They are a married couple. And, like, you can, like, he writes to her about his problems. They make their decisions together. And there's this one part where, like, they haven't heard each other saying these things, but, like, they have lines that are very very similar to each other where like he says something about like he like wants to hide the stars and she like wants to make the heavens dark and it's like you know it's the they're the same line essentially told said two different ways and it's pretty early on Macbeth says stars hide your fires let not light see my black and deep desires let's see Macbeth Lady Macbeth says Come, thick night, and pall thee in the dunnest smoke of hell, that my keen knife see not the wound it makes, nor heaven peep through the blanket of the dark, to cry, hold, hold. He's asking the stars to hide their faces, she's asking that the heavens don't peep, like, it's, they've got the same vibes happening. (laughs) And so, like, it is interesting seeing them kind of act in, in concert, but, like, also, they're both these kind of, like, ungendered creatures Mm. by the end of act one because she obviously asks to be unsexed did we ever give what unsexed means no we (laughs) did did we just assume (laughs) so unsexed not as in like as in sexual intercourse but sex is in like physical sex and she's asking to like be no longer a woman to be unsexed to not be uh, held back by her uh, feminine scruples, I guess. Indeed. It's so funny. I have a giant Shakespeare Bible that, like, at the bottom of each page, like, defines a lot of words or phrases to, like, help if you need it. And I just thought I would check to see what they said for unsex. And I guess I just assume the line is famous enough that we all get it by now because <laughs> they didn't bother. Which is funny. But anyhow, yeah, so she's unsexed. Like, there is this constant question of, like, whether Macbeth is a man. (laughs) Mostly by her, to be fair. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there is a kind of, like, suggestion, because they don't have children. Yes, they do. One of them gets murdered later on in the play. (laughs) What are you talking about? Did I completely misunderstand? But I'm pretty sure that's her kid who gets murdered. Well, first of all, we know they've had children because she talks about how she's... Right, but babies. no, because Macduff says he has no children, so it's not no. clear. What do you mean, no? 
Oh, wait, never mind. Okay, now, yes. Now we are confused. Oh, God, the play is infected. No, us. you're right. You're right. Of course I'm yes, right. Yes, I was, I was mixing up <laughs> another child that gets murdered with one of theirs. But you are right. That is Macduff's child that gets murdered, who gets murdered. Yes, but you are right. Macbeth's children have clearly died before the play. Yes. The point I wanted to make, there's this idea of um, barrenness. The fact that Macbeth has no children, he refers to a barren scepter. And a scepter is very phallic, if if you want to take it there. Yeah. Lady Macbeth says, not had, all spent, which, like, <laughs> you can... Take that how you want to take it. Indeed. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's unclear. Is Macbeth impotent? Does he need a uh, prescription for ED? Is Lady Macbeth murdering all their babies? <laughs> right. Like, there's something unnatural about them. So, of course, they theoretically would not be able to produce children. So they have to go through this conniving way to find power for themselves and to try to keep it. But it's obviously hopeless. And this is also kind of like an antiquated idea of um, passing your line down. Macbeth is very concerned about how he's done all of this. But really, the only people who will benefit are Banquo's issues. I think that's the word they use. And that, like, the idea of legacy passed through your children is an important thing. Well, it's like you live on through your children, which yeah. is, like, honestly something people today still think. So it's not really, I mean, it's antiquated as in, like, people should get over it. Donate to the children's fund. Why? What have children ever done for me? But, like, it's not antiquated because people today are still like, ah, if you don't have children... Then what it's all, what has it all been for? <laughs> right. Because the famous final, really the final monologue about it is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Macbeth has done all this, but for what? No, he has not benefited from it. His non-existent children have not benefited from it. What is it all for? It's meaningless without the children. You got to have the children. And to be clear, this is his monologue that happens right after he finds out Lady Macbeth is dead. It is indeed truly impossible to have children uh, because <laughs> the lady involved in this uh, <laughs> equation is dead. So sad day. But yeah, and it's like both of them also go insane. They're basically the same character. Lady Macbeth isn't given a name. She is just referred to as Lady Macbeth. And in some ways, she is just the lady version of Macbeth. But it it's weird because it's almost like they've chosen... This is their Faustian bargain. They have chosen to be mm. unsexed. And the irony of it is that they want children. It, they never explicitly say they want children, but you can feel it. They want children and they can't have them for whatever reason. Did you want to get mad about those prophecies? <laughs> oh, I think there's one interesting aspect about them, but then the prophecies okay. themselves are just kind of okay. What's the interesting aspect? So the interesting aspect is that we are told the three prophecies are beware Macduff, which I guess isn't really a prophecy. It's just <laughs> kind of a war whatever. Well, That's fine. Yeah. Uh, the second prophecy is no man born of woman will kill you. 
And then the third one is you will not fall until this forest comes to Dunsinine Hill. What's interesting to me is that those prophecies are fulfilled in reverse order. And there's this idea hmm. of mirroring that is present throughout the play. There's the mirroring between the Macbeths. There's the mirroring between Macduff and Macbeth. There's literally a mirror in that third, or it's not a prophecy. When uh, Banquo's descendants come out, one of them is holding a mirror that supposedly shows even more kings. Um, so first the force comes to Dunsinine Hill. Then we learn that Macduff is untimely ripped. And then finally, uh, beware Macduff is, I guess, fulfilled technically. <laughs> and it also ties into this idea of unraveling. So the, I, the, that line that Lady Macbeth has about what's done cannot be undone. But what we're there's like a play on words there because we're literally seeing these people come undone. Lady Macbeth is losing her mind. And there's this kind of way that the threads are spun in that moment where we have the three prophecies and then they come unraveled. And by the end, the whole thing is undone. Macbeth is dead. His kingdom is over. Yada, yada, yada. Everyone dies except the rightful, the people who should be in power. That's my interesting thought about it. Otherwise, I don't really care for the no man born of woman prophecy because I think it's like, okay, okay. Like C-sections don't count as being born <laughs> from what? Okay, it's fine. I guess not. The, he didn't technically go through the birth process. Yes. He was not born. He was just ripped. <laughs> Tell the mom in that instance that she did not give birth to a child. It's like, okay, well, buddy. <laughs> less so in the 1600s where like most of those people would, the women would just be dead. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I understand. Yes. I, I think for the 1600s, that's a fun little prophecy. <laughs> I do think that like to kind of go with your earlier discussion of like paganism versus Christianity. I mean, there's something very Greek about fate and prophecies in this play. Obviously, in that, like, Macbeth kind of creates his own doom, really. And by hearing these prophecies causes them to be fulfilled in some ways. Not, like, entirely. but And, of course, we haven't brought it up, but the weird sisters is not weird as in strange. I mean, they are strange. But it's weird as in W-Y-R-D is the what the word is coming from, which it means fate. So I, I like the sort of like nod to some of those Greek myths and that sort of Greek version of fate in this. But yeah, I mean, otherwise the tree thing is so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> like... You know what I'm going to, my headcanon is going to be because, so some, some guy reports to Macbeth that the trees are moving and like each person like grabs supposedly like a single branch and they're just like holding it over their heads being like, I am tree, I am tree. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going to headcanon that whatever person was on watch is, is nearsighted when you can't see far. Whatever the version is that, like, they have bad vision, glasses weren't as much a thing in that 
day and age, certainly not for the guy you've got watching. <laughs> You're on the walls. So he's just like, these blurry green things from the forest are moving. They must be trees. Uh. As someone who can't see far, if I went out without my glasses, that's exactly <laughs> how I would interpret things. So, In my mind, what would have been a more practical resolution for that prophecy is if they had built their siege weapons or, their, or just their weapons from trees in that forest. And so mm. in a sense, the forest is indeed coming to Dunsinine the witches never said, or I guess the apparition never said specifically they would come in the form of trees. That would have been better. Basically, I'm smarter than Shakespeare is the <laughs> takeaway. I can't remember, though. So for those who don't know, Shakespeare pretty much never came up with his own plots. <laughs> he was always <laughs> stealing from someone or something. And that's OK. But I'm wondering if if the prophecies are from his source. According to Wikipedia, the inspiration for this prophecy may have originated with the Battle of Droisy. Okay. Even if there was some literary or historical context to explain it, it still just is kind of like a, a pretty <laughs> lame. Yeah, you summed it up perfectly. I am a tree. I am a tree. Before I forget, do you want to talk about your great mission for Un? Oh, no, I just, I tracked a lot of Uns. And I just think that this play is, is about Un of things. Like, we've been talking about, it's about undoing. It's about unnaturalness. It's about unseeming. Mm. <laughs> Unsexy. Like, it's, that's just what the play's about. It has a lot of Uns, because that's what it's about. <laughs> There's <laughs> I, no really greater point. Than to say this play is a is a play about uns. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> Do you want to talk about the adaptation? I didn't oh, watch it. Yeah, let me just give some thoughts about adaptations. I don't want to like spoil too much. <laughs> I mean, it's as we spoiled the entire plot. As far as you can spoil Macbeth, yes, indeed. It's just fascinating. Again, this gets back to my idea of like how this play is so open. For interpretation because there kind of is a lack that if you are a good creator you will figure something out to fill that that space in so the adaptations i've seen obviously the high school production it's a high school production but then the next version i saw was roman polanski's version which i honestly don't think is very good but it is kind of interesting because it's played as sort of almost like a psychological thriller. Then I saw the one with Michael Fassbender and they inexplicably tried to play it as an epic. And it doesn't work. <laughs> but then you get to the Coen brothers or Coen brother. Singular. <laughs> Joel Coen's version. It's a very subtle thing and it's purely for me it's a really cool element because it it reinforces the importance of casting and how casting can tell a story but Macbeth and Macduff are both played by black actors and like I said before Malcolm is played by a white dweeby nerdy 
uncharismatic loser. <laughs> Let me take a step back. But there's this really cool aspect to the whole movie where, I mean, the Macbeth is played by Denzel Washington, which in and of itself already says something because this is a Scottish play or it's not a Scottish play. It's about a Scottish king and to cast a black American actor, like not just any black American actor, but the black American actor in the play. Macbeth says his only failing or whatever, his only sin is his vaulting ambition. And when you have a, a black American say that line and you contrast it to like Malcolm, who is just given the or or expected to become king uh, just because he so happens to be born to the right person. And Macbeth, who, at least in terms of merit, is just so much more deserving of the kingship. There's like that interesting play. But the scene, my favorite scene from the movie is between Malcolm and Macduff when Macduff has been told his whole family's been slaughtered. And Malcolm, I got to give credit to the to the actor playing Malcolm because he plays it. He's like very insistent, like, hey, dude, fight for me. Help me out. And it's just like this weird way of. This white person trying to weaponize black pain in order to take out another black person in order for him, the white person, to take power it's just a fascinating play with with this ideas of power and race and stuff and it's not explicitly said because all the lines in the movie are from the play and clearly mm. shakespeare is not was not thinking about race relations for macbeth not in scotland he he has some thoughts about race relations in some other plays oh boy Read Othello. Yeah. <laughs> Some yeah. of those. Or Merchant of Venice, or... <laughs> Not great. But the movie is clearly played out as a dream. The architecture is so <laughs> weird. Nothing makes sense. Ah, I highly recommend Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth, now playing on Apple TV+. Plus. You know, I, what I didn't know is that Francis McDormand had played William Macbeth at Berkeley Rep. Yes. And that that was part of the inspiration for making this movie. As I found out afterwards, Francis McDormand has been playing Lady Macbeth since she was like 15. Good for her. And the thing is, like, Denzel Washington and, ah, Denzel Washington's so good because he plays, like, when Macbeth learns that his wife has died, Denzel Washington plays that scene just with utter resignation. And it's just yeah. so good. Not that there isn't mourning there, but he literally says, uh, so someone's like, uh, the queen, my lord, is dead. And Macbeth says, she should have died hereafter, which means she would have died shortly. <laughs> like, this is not like a... Oh no, my wife has died. This is like, oh well, she would have died in like two seconds anyways. You know, like <laughs> and I think it's again to like contrast him with Macduff, it's like the opposite of that, like I must also feel it as a man. There is this sort of like resignation and not apathy, 
healthy, but there's like a, not, a lot of nihilism in that speech. Yeah. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. <laughs> that speech is good. <laughs> ah, it's so funny because this play, it's so short, but half of it I literally could not care about. Anytime Macbeth <laughs> wasn't involved in a scene, outside of like the very, very small bit with Macduff and Malcolm, I didn't care. Yeah, there's... <laughs> There's like that weird inserted comedy bit with like... Oh, the porter? Yeah, his porter. Which like, there are always weird inserted comedy bits in Chasey sure. plays, but like, normally they're like a recurring thing, so you're like, okay, I, I guess we have this weird recurring comedy storyline. But it's like this porter roll-ups up once, is obnoxious, and then is never there again. Yeah. You know, that's great, because I don't tend to care about the little inserted comedy bits, but... Also, why did he have to be there in the first place if nothing was going to come from this? <sighs> to be generous, because he makes a very extended joke about how when you're drunk, you uh, get horny, but your penis stops working. <laughs> That's the joke. Dick joke. And oh boy, does he make that joke for a long time. But, 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 but Morgan, can we not say that Macbeth is drunk with power. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yes, I, there's so much of this play I do not give a shit about, but it does have some real iconic lines and really good speeches from Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and has that one great scene where Macduff finds out his, his uh, wife and children are dead. Huzzah. I would say... Of all of Shakespeare's plays, at least the ones that I've read, if you are going to experience this play, see it acted out because that, I think that's where it can actually be interesting. You can learn so much about the person behind the play or the I or read into I don't know. I overall advocate for viewing Shakespeare, not reading it. Like obviously, it was not the plays were not meant to be read. Yes. Their, their plays. You should see them on a stage. That said, if you really want to dive into the text, and if that's something you're interested in, my hot tip for Shakespeare, which is what I always did when I was reading Shakespeare in college, is find an adaptation that's like a, not a really abbreviated one, but like a full adaptation. Follow along with it with your text. It's a really f fun way to like fully absorb the text but also see it the way it's meant to be seen if you really want to like delve in there grab a copy plop yourself down <laughs> either use apple tv or you know if you can find it another way i am certainly not advocating for anything illegal but you know have a nice time. <laughs> if the our audience were to watch it illegally, they could simply just say, what's done is done. And nothing bad <laughs> ever happens after you say that line. So. No. You wouldn't steal a car. You wouldn't steal the kingship of Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, this has been, I'm very glad that uh, your sister-in-law requested another Shakespeare play. It's always fun diving into the weeds on these unseamed 
Shakespeare is fun to dive into. I don't know if you have any final thoughts about the Weird Sisters. Oh, so much fun. In fact, as I found out, our modern understanding of the word weird is derived from this play. That's a little fun fact. Ah, when shall we three meet again in thunder, lightning, or in rain? Oh, there's every time they're on stage, they're like having a wild time. And I love that for them. They're just dancing around. One of them says that like she asked for food from some fat lady and the lady's like, no. So in response, the witch, she appeared as a rat to the husband of this lady basically just tortured this guy till he <laughs> died and it's like yeah i respect that i respect that in a woman <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the song is is catchy <laughs> on that uh note from morgan <laughs> uh like subscribe but i think we'll go with something a little more modern next time for our next episode because we're going backwards in time and i want to go forward okay but if there's a listener request of course that that supersedes everything i mean not really we we hold the power here but (laughs) we would love to hear your suggestions Macbeth was the second listener recommendation so far and <laughs> yeah we would just love more of those so hit us up and until next time hasta la vista bye bye